Good morning, Door Creek. Hey, if you're a guest here, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team. Welcome to Door Creek. So I just want to say something about the Christmas offerings. Um, thanks in advance for your generous giving to that. In the last eight years, over $840,000 have been collected, all of it going out to our partners literally around the world to encourage and help vulnerable people, moms, kids, all over the world. And so thanks for doing that. It's making a huge difference, and it's great to be part of a church that is generous. And if you're new to Door Creek, we've just kind of had this rhythm that we've challenged each other with. Let's not go crazy. Let's spend less on ourselves so that we're positioned to give more to people in need and keep the focus on Christ and Christmas and show our love for God and God's love for the world. So thanks for being part of the Christmas offering this year. It'll be exciting. I don't know if it's going to be this year, but at least next year for sure, we will go through that million-dollar mark, which is amazing. So today, we want to talk about what we should expect in the life as a Christ follower. Maybe you're considering becoming a Christ follower. What in your mind are you thinking it's going to be like? Maybe you're new. Maybe you can still remember what people said to you. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. What should we expect is different than what we are expecting. Are our expectations in line with reality and what the Word of God says? If you expect that the Christian life is this cakewalk, and everything's going to be, as I like to say, easy cheesy pie, and a tiptoe through the tulips, and now that I'm on with Jesus, he just paves the way, and man, everything is up and to the north, and it's just awesome. Or if I think, man, it's just going to be hard all the time, because Jesus said, you got to take up your cross, and it's just going to be brutal, and I'm going to gut it out, right? Where, where is it? Or is it possible it's it's this, it's awesome, and it's this, it's a struggle at the same time. If it's all easy, man, are we going to get discouraged and beat up when we find out, man, we're not doing so well in this Christian life. I'm getting pummeled. It's hard. I've got these good intentions and desires that I'm not always following through on that as I've committed my life to Christ. And if we think it's all always going to be hard, there's a point where we go, Man, what's the use? There's just no light at the end of the tunnel, no hope. What do we expect? What are you expecting today? What are you experiencing today? Paul wants to talk to us about that in chapter 7. So grab your Bible, Romans chapter 7. If you're new to the Bible, use the table of contents. We're towards the back. After the book of Acts, the history book, before the letter to the Corinthians, Romans chapter 7. Here's what he's going to do. In three sections, he's going to remind us the people who's had their lives changed by God's grace in Christ now belong to Christ. And if we belong to Christ, verses 1 through 6, he's going to say, if that's true, verses 1 through 6, then we serve God, bearing fruit for God in this new way. It's the way of the Spirit, not of our old nature and our own strength and our own old flesh. If we belong to God, the second section, we understand that the law is actually good. It's not evil. It's not sinful. But sin is really bad. A person who belongs to, to Jesus knows that. And in the last section, 
if we belong to Jesus, then we understand that we will have struggle, but in the struggle, we have a deliverer in Jesus Christ. That's where we're going. And so the first thing is in verses one through six, those who belong to Jesus serve God and others in the power of the Spirit. Verse one, do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. Now let me remind you, Paul uses the word law so many times, and it can mean different things. So right here, he could be referring to all the Old Testament scripture. He could also be referring to just the first five books called the Pentateuch or the law written by Moses, which contains most of the laws. He also is gonna use the word law as kind of like a principle later on. So we go on. For example, by law, he's speaking of the Old Testament law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. She's committed adultery. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is no longer an adulteress if she marries another man. She's free to remarry. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that is Jesus, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, describing the life before coming to faith and receiving new life in Christ, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Those who belong to Christ serve in this new way. It's the way of the Spirit, not of the old way, of the old nature and the flesh. Notice, audience, he says... I'm speaking to those who know the law. And we're assuming he's speaking to the Jews there in Rome. And remember, these congregations spread around the city in these little house churches of 20 to 30 people. There would be Jews and there would be Gentiles. But it's not as simple as saying, oh, he's just speaking to the Jews now. Because a lot of the Gentiles who now are followers of Christ actually converted to Judaism. They were proselytes and they were learning about the law of God. So he's taken them back to the law. And his point in this section is, through Christ, you've died to the law. You've been set free now so that you could be married, belong to Christ. And the illustration he uses here is the illustration of marriage. So it's principally not a teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but we learn some things. But he's using it as an illustration of how we're freed now from the law to now belong to Christ. So let's just kind of do a primer, God's take on marriage, because it is his idea from the very beginning. One man, one woman. It's an exclusive relationship with deep intimacy, body, mind, and soul, this profound unity, and it's a covenant relationship for life. Jesus says, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. But Jesus did allow, he permitted divorce in the case of immorality. Any sex outside of marriage gives you Permission. It doesn't mean you have to, but it gives you permission. 
And Paul says to that in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, also the desertion of an unbelieving spouse releases you from that marriage relationship and so you can be free to remarry. So in chapter seven, in these beginning six verses, he's illustrating his point that death changes a person's relationship to the law. And in the same way, because we've identified with Christ, chapter six, those first four verses we looked at last week, that we've identified with his death, we've died to the law. What does that mean? We've died to the law in that we don't ever look to the law as being the means, the ladder, so to speak, that we could climb up doing these moral things for God so that we could find a place with God and a relationship with God. We've died of that. We understand the law can't do that. It cannot bring us to God. It only brings us to the end of ourselves and points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've died to the law in Christ as we've identified with him. And now we have been set free to this intimate relationship of belonging. And that's what the good news for all people is all about. That's why Jesus came. He came at Christmas to die on Good Friday, to be raised on, on, on Easter Sunday, that we might have a relationship, this beautiful relationship. And it's not surprising that the illustration he used here was from marriage because throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, this will be a metaphor of understanding the closeness that God would want to have with us as people. And so that's the mystery of the gospel, that we become adopted children. Chapter 8, next time we get into in the new year, when we get back into Romans, we're going to see how the Spirit in us it, it gives attestation, it whispers in our heart of hearts that we belong. You and I were made to belong. And you think about all the different times in our life when we longed to belong. And we couldn't get in. They didn't have, they didn't want us. And it could be the silly stuff of our childhood, and then it can be the stuff of adulthood. We go, what is going on here? I just want to belong here. I want to belong in the workplace. I want to belong in my family. I want to belong in the neighborhood. God wants us to know that our belonging is with him. And it's deep and it's rich. And it sets us up free to live life in a new way. And the power of the spirit that raised Christ from the dead so that we could give ourselves away. And in doing that, find life. And bless those God's called us to serve. But he's going to go on to say there's a big difference between being dead to sin, the penalty of sin, which is death, the power of sin, which we have no way to go against it, but always to give into it until Christ gives us a new heart, a new power of the Spirit. But just because we're dead to sin doesn't mean that sin is dead and inoperative in our life, that, that sin is no longer present in our life. He's going to get to that in verse 14, but true to Paul, you know, we get his run-on sentences that go on like for 16 verses. Here we got a parenthesis. And he's going to get to that point. But now he's going to get to an anticipated question. Because he, he's just said in his section we read in verse 5 that the law arouses sin. And he's anticipating the question because he's already said in chapter 5, verse 20, that the law increases sin. He's already said in chapter 4, verse 5, 15, that the law leads us and brings us to wrath. That he's anticipating the people say, I know you're all about grace, Paul. And I'm hearing you say that the law is really bad, that the law is sinful. 
So look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Now he's going to be talking about why the law is not sinful. He's going to give us at least six reasons, I think, here in the text. For I would not have known that coveting really was what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, Paul says. I think he's alluding back to this, this union that we have with Adam way back from the very beginning as he represented all humanity. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity, same, same, ver, same phrase as in verse 8, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good, the law, to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. So his answer is clear. Is sin bad? Is sin evil? Is, sin, is, is the law evil? Is, is it sinful? Certainly not. And we got to understand the difference between the law and sin. Sin destroys us. The law simply defines what it is that's destroying us. And it puts the spotlight on our sin and makes us very aware that we can't fix that. We need a savior. So he gives us six reasons why the law is not evil. First, the law is good because it defines sin. It helps us know right from wrong. He says, I wouldn't even know what coveting was until the law came into being. It helps me understand that. The law points out sin like an MRI, the cancer, a tumor. Second, the law is good because it reveals my sin, our sin. That's a good thing because without the law, we might not know that we are separated from God, because of our rebellion and sin, we might not understand that we're, we're going to die for this. And it's ruining our lives. That's a good thing. Third, law is good because it reveals sin's true colors. It's really, really bad. So the law does something that you're going to get this illustration because we do it all the time. Well, maybe you don't, but you could do this. So do you have a phone that has a camera? That's like all of us, right? Okay, I love you flip phone guys. That's so awesome. I... <laughs> I want to go back to that. So you got a camera on your phone. You take a picture. And do you know this? That you can you go into your phone and hit edit. All the young people are just laughing at me right now going, yeah, we know that. Okay, so you can edit the picture, right? You can resize it. You can pick up one of the filters and change the way it looks, right? And, and you know, if you get into Photoshop and all the high-tech stuff, man, you can airbrush it and you can make this picture. You could put people in the picture who weren't in the picture. I mean, you can do all kinds of things, right, with technology today. Then you can actually go back into that picture, you hit edit, and there's a button that says revert. Ah, what's that? Back to the original. That, that's what the law does. It gets us back to the original picture 
of who we really are. Because we're really good at cropping out the stuff that we don't want anybody to see. We're really good at airbrushing the blemishes of our life, right? And then the law just reverts us back and says, here's the true picture. Here's the mirror of who you are before a holy God. Ooh, that's what the law does. It's good. It defines us. It reveals our sin. It reveals sin's true color that is awful. The law is good, verse 10, because it brings life. That was its intent all along. That's what he said to Adam and Eve. God did. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day you eat it, you will die. You, you obey the command, you live. Fifth, the law is good because it's holy, righteous, and good. Pointing to God's moral character, to his beauty. Pointing us to what it looks like to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Verse sixth one, the law is good because it's spiritual. That is, it is given by the spirit. It comes from God's spirit. All of scripture does. Peter will talk about this very thing in 2 Peter 1.21. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. In other words, Moses didn't get up one day. Jeremiah the prophet didn't get up one day and say, you know what? I feel like writing holy scripture today. That's what he's saying. It didn't happen like that. But prophets like Moses who gives us the law, though human, he was, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It was a miracle that God would use failed instruments, sinful instruments, to give us his holy, righteous, and good word. In the same way that we celebrate the incarnation, that God would use beautiful Mary, but a sinner Mary, to bring about the delivery of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, don't be confused into thinking that the law and sin are synonymous. They're not. Sin is the problem, not the law. The law is only pointing out the problem. So did you notice the phrase in 8 and 11? I pointed out the repeated phrase. And it talks about sin takes advantage of the law, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. And what does it do? When it says don't covet, Man, it produces all kinds of coveting. What's it seizing the opportunity of the law? Knowing that the law that comes alongside of our sinful nature will bring about the wet paint syndrome. Remember we talked about it? The sign that says, don't touch, wet paint. And we go, I wonder if that's been up there too long and maybe somebody <laughs> forgot to take it down. And so we just go, like, when is the last time you ever touched a bench that didn't have a wet paint sign? You've never done that. The only time, he's saying that. So when you, when you have the commandment, it seizes the opportunity that the law brings as it's juxtaposed to our rebellious nature that goes, oh yeah, nobody tells me what to do. Watch that. That's what he's talking about. We talked about this chapter five, verse 20. Sin, the law increasing sin. I think another way it seizes us is deceiving us, right? He talks about that in verse 11, deceiving us to follow the desires. Maybe it's not so bad. Our curiosity gets the best of us. Maybe it's gonna be really good, like Adam and Eve. Well, maybe, maybe the, the serpent's right. Maybe we're missing out, and we really will be like God. How else does it seize the opportunity? Well, I think as we battle against temptation... We can grow weary and just finally give in. So having said all this, let's remember the law is good for all these things that we talked about and more, but it's not 
good enough to save us. So the law is good, but keeping the law is not the way to salvation and what he uses that word justification, where we're made right, declared right before God. The law only reveals our inadequacy. So we move on to the illustration of the MRI again. So the MRI shows the tumor. The MRI is not the cure. That's totally intuitive, right? We get that. The law is the MRI. It's not the cure. But it's pointing us to the doctor, to God, to his son, the physician, that can heal all our diseases. I love this old, old poem that some have attributed, we really don't know who said it, wrote it. Some have attributed it to John Bunyan, the great writer of Pilgrim's Progress, the difference between the law and grace. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. So where have we been? If we belong to Christ, we're serving in this new way, not the old way that was all about ourselves in our own strength for our own glory, but in the new way of the Spirit, we're bearing fruit for God. If we belong to God, we know that the law is good. We're not throwing it out. And we know that sin is bad. It's really bad. Now he comes to the last thing. And this is the most controversial portion in all of Romans. And the debate here centers on, is Paul describing his life as a Christ follower today in the present, or is he talking about his life before Christ? So those who belong to Christ will struggle and look to Christ for deliverance. So look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but Paul says, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Well, that certainly doesn't sound like the language of someone who's a believer, does it? I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know the good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. I think this is where Dr. Seuss came from. <laughs> you were thinking the same thing. So I find this law, here's that word again, this principle now at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now, the disclaimer here is there are godly women and men, great scholars who know a lot more about the Greek and the Hebrew than I do. This is Greek, by the way, New Testament. And what you find is there's equal weight on both sides of this. It's his experience today. It was his experience before he became a Christ follower. And they'll point out different 
verses in the passage. So for those who see it as his life before, they're going to go to verse 14, where he says, I'm unspiritual, I'm sold as a slave. Or to verse 18, good itself doesn't dwell in me, even though he qualifies it in my old nature. Verse 23, how in the world could Paul be describing his present experience with Christ when he says he's a prisoner of law? Because he's just said in 6, 18, and 22, I've been set free from the law. So my job isn't just to say there's people that disagree, here's this and here's that, but I've, I've got to come to a conclusion at this point in my life. So here's where I'm at, and I say it with great humility because we're going to invite the preeminent New Testament scholar, Dr. Doug Moo, to come and give a forum. It's going to be like an all-day forum on Romans in February. And, and I'm not going to agree with his point of view, and he's so much smarter than I am. But I'm going to tell you why I think it's what he's talking about is his present experience, okay? So I want to just work through, so make sure your Bible's open so you can see that this is rooted in the text. So the first argument is going to be from context, which is always how we need to understand. So the immediate context, the context in the letter, other letters of Paul, the New Testament, the Old Testament. That's how you work those rings, trying to understand context. So in the close proximity of this passage, we've just come out of chapter 6, where he said, look, we have a standing in grace, but don't presume on that. Don't think it's a get-out-of-jail-card-free, where you can do anything you want. And you go, but grace is greater. Praise God, grace is greater. So eyes wide open, I'm going to sin and do my own thing. He says, no, 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 you can't do that. Remember who you are. He goes back to identity. You are dead to, in Christ. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God. You are his servant, not the old nature servant. And then he gives these imperatives, these commands based on his identity. So in verse 11, he's going to say, don't count yourself. Don't see yourself. Don't consider yourself anything other than dead to sin. He says, verse 12, don't let sin reign. Verse 13, don't offer any part of yourself to sin. Verse 14, sin should no longer be your master. And these commands imply that you could do the opposite of what he's asking you to do, right? The context is there is a struggle. Second reason, I believe it's his experience today, present experiences, he actually changes to the present tense. Everything before verse 14 is in the past tense. He changes now to the present tense. And the present tense isn't just the struggle, but his praise to God for Christ is delivered. Third reason. His attitude toward the word of God in verse 22, where he says, I delight in God's law. That's the language of a righteous man. Psalm 1 will say, the righteous man delights on God's law. He meditates on it day and night, and he's like that tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. Whatever he does, just it flourishes. There's nothing withering. Psalm 19, Psalm 119 keeps describing the person who delights in the law of God as a righteous woman, as a righteous man. People who are far from God do not delight in the word of God. They don't savor it. They don't think about it. They dismiss it. Next, fourth, his view of himself, wretched, miserable. People far from God have a high moral view of themselves. That's why they're not looking for a savior. They think they're good enough. Number five, he thanks God for Christ as his deliverer. When's the last time you heard someone who's an agnostic, an atheist, 
someone who wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ say to you, man, I'm so grateful this Christmas that we're remembering that God sent his son to save us. It's, just not, it's not what we would expect. Now, the last one I threw in there that has these asterisks by it, because it's not in the text, and it's not what we base theological truth upon, but I'll just say this. For the 50-plus years of my life of faith with Christ, the word struggle fits. This battle within of good intentions and lack of follow-up, that fits. And so the slide reminds us the struggle is between our good intentions and our actions. Our mind that's a slave, it's committed, a servant to God, and our sinful nature that, that desires to follow the law of sin. Speaking of these good intentions, Bernard of Clairvaux once said, hell is full of good intentions. Later, you've heard the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that's the struggle. I think he's talking about his present experience, but let me say it again. There are godly people that would say otherwise. Let me say the last thing. If it is describing his life before Christ, aren't we all a little bit depressed? Like, really? Because that's describing my life today in so many ways. All right, so what's his conclusion? On himself, I'm wretched. I'm miserable. I'm an unhappy man. As I reflect on my inability to connect the intentions with action. On the struggle, I can't fix this. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? On his hope, thanks be to God. He, in the struggle, his hope is Christ. He's his deliverer. So how does Christ deliver us? Let me say how he doesn't usually deliver us, but we'd wish he would. So my brother-in-law is a pilot, flies for Delta. And he tells me that one of the practices of Delta is, as you're flying, the pilots that are ahead of you on the same route will, will just let everybody else know on the route where the turbulence is and what elevation it is, altitude it is, so that they can go above it and give us a nice ride. And we love that, don't we? Because who likes turbulence? I don't. I don't like turbulence. And so what Jesus is not going to do is say, okay, I'm your pilot, right? And here's the deal. I always get you to smooth air. It's just easy, cheesy, tip and toe through the tulips. Now, there will be times when we experience smooth air. But it's more like what we have in the Psalms when in Psalm 23, the psalmist David says, even though I walk, he didn't say into the valley of death, through the valley of death. And that's like a really important word in that verse. You're in it right now, this dark valley, it's really hard. His confidence was he was going through it because God was with him. Even Christ with him, the one who would go through death and come back and lead us through the darkest of valleys. His rod, his staff will comfort me. How does Christ deliver us? Christ always when he's clearly seen, delivers us by reminding us that he's better. He's better than the deceptive lies that says, no, this is actually better. He's better in all of his beauty, in all of his great love, where he gave up his life for you and me. He's better. He delivers us as he forgives us when we do a face plant. He's better because he prays and he intercedes. He's better because his spirit is within us to strengthen us, to resist temptation. 
He's better because he promises to finish the work that he's begun. And so Christ's work to this date in our lives has freed us from the penalty and the power. And one day he will complete his work and there will be no more sin in this world, meaning no more sin in my heart. Wow, I can't wait. He's better. He's our deliverer. But verse 25, the second half, makes it clear that the deliverance from the struggle is not now, but future. There is a war within, but also peace as we stand in grace through Christ, the one who came to deliver us from sin's curse. So let me read a few, uh, list a few implications of this teaching here. The first is profound and should in- encourage you. The struggle within is a normal part of the Christian life. Jesus was tempted. And the struggle went from the wilderness, right after his baptism, all the way to where he hung on the cross. There was a struggle. Paul, at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. The life of faith is a fight. We should be encouraged when we're in the struggle. We should also be encouraged by the struggle because the struggle isn't just normative. It confirms, it's almost like a birth certificate that says we are born again. We belong to God. So let me define something about the struggle. Because if you think the struggle is you're you're always giving in, that's not the struggle. You're not struggling if you always give in. But if you're wrestling with temptation, if you're asking God for grace and strength to resist, then you shouldn't be discouraged when you fall and you go back to God and say, God, forgive me again. The enemy's going to co-opt that, seizing the opportunity of our own weakness and get us to believe that we don't deserve we don't deserve his love and mercy and that we, we aren't his followers because we're just, we're just pathetic. But isn't it interesting that the fact that we're in the struggle that we actually are fighting against these sinful desires in our heart are giving evidence that we belong to God. And that's something you got to pick up this week because I guarantee you that's not our first thought. Our first thought is, I am such a loser. I bet you nobody in this room struggles like I do. (laughs) Be encouraged. J.C. Ryle in his classic book, Holiness, says this, inward warfare and inward peace are the marks of true spirituality. And the reason we can have peace is because of Christ, even when we fall. There's another implication. Expect your actions and feelings to condemn you and let that lead you to the cross and to Christ. Don't base your identity on your feelings, but always on the facts of God's word. And when we do, verse one of chapter eight becomes ours. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's so beautiful. No condemnation. So let's bring it home. Are you in Christ Jesus? Do you belong? How do we answer that according to God's word? God's word says we belong if our faith is in Christ, not in our law keeping, 
not in our good moral behavior. If our faith is solely in Christ, having received the gift of, of grace through Christ, then we belong. We've been made new. We've been set free to live for him. Have you done that? We're, we're setting our faith. If you just think about the, the rhythm of this text, we're setting our faith in the one who always served in the power of the Spirit, right? All through his life, leading him all the way to the cross. If we belong, we understand that Christ kept every part of the law and understood sin was so bad that he was willing to give up his own life to free us from the curse and the penalty of death. If we belong, we're trusting in the one who battled with the devil, with sin and death, and forfeited peace on the cross that we might know the peace of God and have peace with God. Have I put my trust in him? From the text, specifically here, chapter 7, we answer, how do I know we belong? By, by going to the two questions. Am I bearing fruit for God? Am I serving in the new way of the Spirit? So, what does it mean to bear fruit for God? It means the fruit is, is the results of God's work in our life, of grace in our life. So remember, there's this overflow of grace we talked about last week. There's this overflow of God's grace that shows up like in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. There's more of Jesus growing in me. There's more of my life being like Jesus where I'm laying down my life. It's not about me. The work of the Spirit is always to shine the spotlight on Christ. The old nature is always to shine the spotlight on me. Do I belong? Am I bearing fruit? Am I serving in the Spirit's power on, or my own? Am I serving for Christ's glory, which the Spirit is all about? Am I growing to become more like Christ? So if you find yourself struggling, it's a sign that you belong. And if you find that in the struggle, you've given in and given up, it's never too late to turn back to Christ and do that today. If you've never belonged, do that today. Place all you have in Christ. You confess who you are, where you've been, and you trust all of who you are on Christ. If, if you've given in, and you've gone back to the old patterns for all the old comforts or for whatever reason, it's never too late to turn back. The thief on the cross in the last hours or minutes of his life turned to Christ and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. It is never too late to receive the mercy of Christ. And it's never too late to make up for lost ground. Lost time. He'll restore the years of the locust, the prophet says, and by God's grace, your best days can be ahead of you as you live out a life of faith belonging to him. Let's pray. So Lord, we're connecting uh, these beautiful truths with Christmas as we come to Christmas to remember the beautiful gift of your son who came is our deliverer. This innocent, beautiful baby born in obscurity who would hang in disgrace between heaven and earth to be our great deliverer. And we love you, Lord Jesus, that you would do that when we didn't deserve it,
and we weren't even asking for it. And Lord, how we love you, that you would place your spirit in us, that we could belong to you. Grant faith today. Give us mercy, your forgiveness, as we turn back to you, having given up in the struggle. And may we keep on fighting in your strength for your glory as we lay down our life to you and for others. Until you come or call us home, this is our prayer. Amen.